Hi, everyone, and welcome to Dark as Hell. I'm your host, Maggie. The story I'm telling you today is one that only became stranger and stranger the more I dug into it. With each new factor or detail, I thought, okay, surely this will be the one that starts to clinch everything in this story together. But no. Each new detail layered over the many, many confounding ones that build up this case. Every detail only drags you further into this story that simply doesn't make sense. That phrase is something I found myself muttering out the side of my mouth as I frantically scribbled notes and, on more than one occasion, out and out loudly stating to absolutely no one, this doesn't make sense. Hell, I even have it written on one section of my research. Makes no fucking sense. We talk a lot about the perplexing, the suspicious, and the inexplicable here on Dark as Hell. But today, I think it's safe to say that the death of Blair Adams is one of the most complex and confounding cases that we've covered yet. Describing his death as mysterious doesn't really encompass how utterly bizarre the preceding events are that drove a 31-year-old man from his home in British Columbia thousands of miles away to a little highway-bound town in Tennessee. Bizarre events that took place over a five-day span that ultimately left Blair Adams half-naked, surrounded by thousands of dollars in three different types of currency, two different sets of car keys, and dead in a parking lot of a construction site. But that's only part of our story today. Let me tell you how we think the mysterious death of Blair Adams came about in 1996 and why we still don't have any clue to explain away the countless mysteries that surround it to this day. Let's get ready to get dark as hell. Adams, whose full name was Robert Dennis Blair Adams, was 31 years old in July of 1996, and things in his life were going well. He had struggled with addiction issues in the past, but for the last two years, he had been faithfully attending AA meetings. He thoroughly enjoyed his life in Surrey, a town in the province of British Columbia in Canada, and made a good living as a foreman for a construction company. His previous work at his stepfather's prefab construction company, SS Cedar Homes, over in Frankfurt, Germany, it had set him up for success back in Canada, and he carried part of his time in Germany with him still. He had met a woman while living in Frankfurt, and the two had been dating, even despite their continental differences. His German girlfriend, whose name hasn't been made public, often said that Blair was, quote, a gentleman. Friends described him as, quote, cheery, friendly, fun-loving, and his co-worker said that he was a, quote, hard worker who liked his job and did it well. He often bragged about that same job. In fact, he really loved it. Closer to home, his mother, Sandra Edwards, described her son as kind and ambitious, as well as being generous. Like I said, things were going well. Life was good. And then the calendar turned to the first week of July, 1996, and the normally steadfast and happy-go-lucky Blair began to change, noticeably. It was little things at first. He became a little more irritable, a little more frequently. His moods overall started to swing as well. He started leaving job sites unlocked at the end of the workday. And then those little things became not so little and a little more noticeable. Blair began telling people that he believed unnamed people were spreading rumors about him. He told other friends that he believed someone was out to kill him. Paranoia, it seemed, 
began to take a hold of him. According to Knox News, Blair went so far as to tell, quote, his German girlfriend and at least one other friend that he dreaded violence from former co-workers who had recently returned from Germany. But for what reason, other than some accounts that claimed a few co-workers said that he was abrasive, no one knows why Blair would have cause to fear them, or much less why he would fear anyone. The thing that really highlighted how wrong something seemed to be in his life was the fact that despite two years of unfailing attendance, Blair suddenly stopped going to his AA meetings. The people in Blair's life knew something was wrong, if not because Blair had explicitly stated it to them or shared his fears with them, but anyone close to him could see by his actions and his behavior that something wasn't just off, it was desperately wrong. His mother, Sandra, would later say to reporters that, quote, something was obviously very much the matter. He hadn't been sleeping well. Something was wrong. I asked him numerous times, what was wrong? And he said, I don't think I should tell you about it. And to this day, I don't know what it is. With all of the signs and the signals that Blair was both hinting at and blatantly stating, I have to imagine that the first week of July 1996 must have felt like some sort of countdown. A countdown, but to what end? No one could have expected. The story of Blair Adams relies heavily on a timeline, almost, you could say, similarly to the case of Moore Murray's disappearance, and a little bit of Bryceless Pisa, too. We know so many details and have so many timestamps, and yet there's still so much that we don't know. What we do know, however, started on Friday, July 5th, 1996. Sometime that day, Blair arrived at his bank and made two startling moves. He withdrew all of his money from his savings account and entirely emptied his safety deposit box. The contents of the safety deposit box were, as far as we know, five ounces of gold bars, gold coins, platinum coins, and various pieces of jewelry. After his trip to the bank, it's been reported that that is when he made his cryptic remarks to his mother, Sandra, about how he couldn't tell her what was bothering him. Either later on the 5th or sometime on Saturday, July 6th, Blair unexpectedly drove three hours and 56 minutes from Surrey out to the town of Courtenay, where his uncle lived. We know nothing about what he hoped to get out of seeing his uncle and only know that despite the nearly four hour trip, when Blair arrived, his uncle wasn't home. He hadn't been expecting his nephew. We don't know if Blair returned back to Surrey or not either. And from there, Blair's weekend only continued to get stranger. On Sunday, July 7th, Blair arrived at a ferry station in Victoria, aiming to get a spot on the car ferry with his Chevrolet Chevette in order to travel from Victoria into the United States by way of Seattle, Washington. It's unclear if he ever even made it onto the boat at all, or if he was stopped immediately, but what we do know is that the U.S. immigration officials at the station that day, they flagged him and denied him entry. Officials believed that he fit the profile of a drug courier due to the fact that he was a single man traveling by himself, and he still had all of that cash and the other valuables from his bank account on his person in his fanny pack, so they denied him access to the U.S. This didn't stop Blair, though, who was apparently hell-bent on getting out of Canada for reasons that we still don't know. After he was barred from taking the ferry into the U.S., Blair hit the road once again in his Chevette, this time back to Surrey, his hometown. While there, he stopped at his workplace and unceremoniously quit the job that he had once bragged about. 
It's been reported that he told a friend he, quote, didn't know if he could carry on at the job, but no one is entirely sure what he meant by that. Stranger still, he claimed that he wanted to collect his last paycheck as he quit, but when he finally left the job site, he just didn't take the money with him. When he left the job site, he wasn't done traveling yet either. From his former job site, Blair drove the 45 minutes out to Vancouver and met with a female friend later in the evening. Some news outlets have said that this person was a platonic friend, while others have said that this was a girlfriend. So the nature of their relationship and the implications it could have with his girlfriend over in Germany isn't exactly clear. But when Blair showed up to this woman's house, she later told investigators that his attitude was concerning. Detectives learned that, according to this friend, Blair, quote, seemed depressed. And when conversation turned to what he had just done earlier in the day, quote, he almost cried as he spoke about quitting his job at the construction firm. This, though, wasn't the only strange conversation he had that night. Because once again, Blair wasn't done driving. His next stop along the way was in New Westminster, a 35-minute drive from Vancouver, but it was back in the direction of Surrey. Again, reporting on this case has gotten garbled over the years, so combined with the unexplained behaviors that Blair exhibited, certain details like exact times, actual names, and confirmed dates, they've been lost to the years. From my research, though, it seems that Blair left his friend in Vancouver and headed to New Westminster very early in the day of Monday, July 8th, perhaps so early that it was more around midnight or those first few earliest hours of the day. The person that he met with in New Westminster was another female friend, and his conversations with her were even stranger and more frightening than his previous ones. When Blair arrived at this friend's house, he began asking, actually begging by most accounts, her to take him across the border or to at least go with him. He apparently thought that if he had someone else with him, the U.S. border officers would find him less suspicious and grant him entrance to the States. The conversation was allegedly, quote, frenetic and brief, but Blair, quote, seemed anxious and didn't want to stay in his apartment. However, when this friend eventually refused to go or take him across the border, Blair let a bomb drop. Without explaining otherwise, he claimed that his desperation was due to the fact that someone wanted to kill him. No one really knows what exactly was on his mind or what all led him to make the several visits that he did over this July weekend, but in total, we know that Blair made five stops that weekend. His uncle's house in Courtenay, his construction site where he quit his job, a female friend's house in Vancouver, another female friend's house in New Westminster, and his last stop of the weekend would be back in Surrey at his mother's house. There, he apparently packed a duffel bag, got back in his faithful Chevette, and took off again. This would be the last time his mother would see him alive. On Monday, July 8th, Blair Adams was on the move again. Since Friday the 5th, he had been on the go constantly throughout the British Columbia area. And honestly, I don't even know if he had a chance to sleep or if he even did throughout this entire weekend. After leaving his mother's house in Surrey, Blair stopped at what has only been described as a travel service. And there, he bought a round-trip plane ticket worth $1,600 to Frankfurt, Germany. Knox News reported that while purchasing the ticket, Blair seemed subdued and simply handed over the money for this ticket, which was notice noticeable because he paid for his ticket in all cash. But then, just hours after purchasing this ticket, Blair would go on to request a refund for it. Again, we're not sure where or how he made this request, but his explanation to whoever serviced him was that, quote, the person he was supposed to be visiting ended up getting sick. Later, it would become clear that no one in his life had any idea who he was talking about. No one knows why he was trying to go to Frankfurt, 
least of all, his girlfriend who lived there because she hadn't been expecting him in the slightest. For the rest of the day, it's unclear where precisely Blair was or what all he got up to after he purchased his flight to Frankfurt and tried to arrange for a refund. The next sighting of him came the next day, just before dawn, and he was stopped by, once again, border officials within the Pacific Highway Border Crossing Unit. This time, he was stopped in even stranger circumstances. He was discovered wandering near the Canadian-U.S. border on foot and even made attempts to cross the border by foot. What really unnerved the border authorities, though, was the condition that they found Blair in. He was said to have scratches all over his hands, and they even noticed some on his legs. They reported that he seemed dazed, except when they questioned him about a blue car. Because the other reason Blair had been stopped was because he matched an auto theft suspect who was on the run. A blue car had been stolen in Vancouver in the recent days, and coincidentally, it was just before Blair tried to cross the border that the car was found. And it was found right near the cross point that Blair was attempting to use. The dazed attitude that Blair gave off apparently sharpened into focus when the police were questioning him about this car and his possible connection to it. And it's been reported that he claimed his innocence and had nothing to do with any of it. Without any actual evidence to connect him to the car theft, the authorities had to let him go. And they kicked him back right into Canada for the second time. What's odd though is this. During the later investigation, one of the friends that Blair met with on Sunday, she would tell police that she had seen Blair driving a blue car and his Chevrolet Chevette was not blue. If Blair was driving a blue car, then where had he gotten it? Where was his Chevette at the time? And it wasn't as if Blair had somehow ditched his Chevette, oh no, because once Blair was released by the Pacific Highway Border Crossing authorities, he would wind up at Vancouver International Airport. And it appears that he traveled the one hour distance between the border to the airport in his Chevette. And I say all of this because it's at Vancouver International that Blair would inexplicably ditch his Chevette only to be found later by police. And instead, he rented a Nissan Altima. And it's with that Nissan that finally, on the third attempt in making true on the idea that a third time's the charm, Blair successfully entered the U.S. by driving in over the border. Once in the States, he headed straight to Seattle and yet another airport, this time Seattle-Tacoma International. While in the airport, he either turned in his Frankfurt tickets for the refund or he received some sort of credit for them. He then purchased a different ticket. This time, it was a one-way ticket to Washington, D.C., all the way across the country. The flight was scheduled to leave at 10 p.m. that same day, but what was strange about the interaction was the nature of the ticket itself. The one-way ticket cost Blair $800, and airline officials remarked that they remembered thinking it was odd that he bought the exorbitantly priced one-way ticket when the round-trip ticket for the same flight was basically half that price. Blair, apparently, simply didn't care. At 10 p.m., he boarded the flight that would take him across the country and into the nation's capital. He arrived at Dulles International at around 5 a.m. By 6.45, he was off the plane, through security, and renting another car. This time, he selected a white Toyota Camry, and once he had the keys, he began, as he had for the last few days, driving. This time, driving south. Before he arrived in Tennessee, one other person did see him. A man on U.S. Highway 250 in the town of Troy, Virginia. The men remembered the encounter because, well, Blair had backed into him. It was about 10.15 in the morning when the minor accident occurred, and there only seemed to be minor damage to the cars. 
The man that Blair hit said that while the Canadian seemed nice, he also gave off the impression that he was, quote, in a hurry. But the question has to be asked, in a hurry on the road to where? The destination, apparently, was Knoxville, Tennessee. After the unexpected stop in Troy, Blair drove straight through the day, a total of 475 miles that took roughly seven hours. He arrived in Knoxville as the evening was setting in. And that we know Blair arrived in Knoxville around five because he was seen at a gas station on Strawberry Plains Pike at 5.30. And like so many other instances in this story, the interaction that he had here was strange. It's unclear what exactly Blair was doing at the gas station. Like, we don't even know if he got gas or not. But he was the source of a phone call to the Interstate Repair Service from the gas station attendant. The responder to the call, a man named Gerald Sapp, arrived at the gas station and he was informed by the clerk that an agitated Blair was claiming the key to his rental car just wasn't working. So Sapp took a glance at the keys Blair was showing him. Then he looked at the car Blair said he was driving. Sapp looked at the keys again. Because the keys Blair was proffering towards the roadside attendant, they weren't even for the make or model of his car. The keys in his hand belonged to the Nissan, the same car that he had rented back in Vancouver. The car that he was driving at the time was the rented Camry from DC. Sapp, needless to say, was a bit bamboozled especially when Blair began refusing all attempts to help him look for the keys, saying that he knew the ones in his hand were the ones for the car in front of him. According to Sapp, quote, I asked him to look in his pockets. I said, if you drove this thing up here, you gotta have another key in your pocket. And he wouldn't look. So I thought he was nuts. He was bound and determined that he had the key he needed for that car. In any regard, between Blair's stubbornness and Sapp's understandable confusion, eventually Sapp arranged to have the Camry towed and Blair was dropped off at a nearby hotel, a Fairfield Inn. Even then, the strangeness of the encounter between Blair and the attendant didn't end. When Sapp pulled into the Fairfield parking lot, Blair apparently got out of the car and simply walked off without taking his duffel bag with him and without a glance backwards. Sapp he actually had to run it into the hotel for him. Now, it was, all of this was strange, but none of it was exactly threatening when it came to Blair's behavior. Speaking to Knox News, Sapp recalled his impression of Blair. Quote, the guy was not all there. He didn't appear to be messed up. He didn't appear to be on drugs, but his mind wasn't functioning correctly for some reason. It was 7 p.m. at this point, and the same behavior pattern continued. Strange, unsettling, but not outwardly threatening or violent. For the next 40 minutes, hotel employees watched and surveillance captured as Blair walked in and out of the lobby five times in under an hour. This was all before he even rented a room, which he did with a $100 bill. Once again, he walked away after the exchange, even as the receptionist called down and tried to give him back his change. The front desk tried to call him at his room several times, but to no avail. One of the employees there that night, Tika Hartsfield, remembered how odd the entire scenario was. Quote, he was just very nervous, agitated, expecting someone to come in on him, even though there wasn't anybody there. I don't know who he was looking for, but he was waiting for somebody to walk in for him. He was paranoid. It's unclear how exactly he did it, as in if he left out the front door or took one of those side exits. But at some point that night, Blair left the hotel. Without a car, Blair walked out into the Knoxville night. Surveillance never caught any visual of of him returning to the hotel. Neither did any of the employees. 
At 3.30 a.m., a scream broke through the night. It was said to be abrupt and sounding like a woman, according to a security guard at a nearby business. But nothing came of it. Four hours later, at 7.30 a.m., that countdown that had been slowly tick, tick, ticking away finally came to a stop. Because Blair Adams, he was dead. It was early on the morning of Thursday, July 11th, 1996, when two construction workers arrived on the site of their latest project. The under construction country inn was just off the exit for Strawberry Plains Pike, the same place that Blair had had that strange encounter with Gerald Sapp and his alleged missing car keys just the day before. As the construction workers approached the site, they probably slowed coming to a halt as they made their way across the parking lot. What looked to be a disheveled homeless person asleep on the pavement met their gaze. As they walked closer though, and actually took in the details of the site before them, the two men realized that they were wrong because there were gold bars and cash spread all around the half-naked man before them. And the man wasn't asleep. He was dead. When police arrived on the scene, it was a strange one, a scene unlike any other that any of them had ever seen. Knox County Sheriff Jimmy J.J. Jones was a lieutenant serving on the major crimes unit at the time, and he was one of the officers who responded to the scene. It wasn't just the state of Blair's body that was unusual. Truly, it's said that the entire scene of whatever it was that befell him had investigators stymied from the start. Let's talk about the surroundings first. Scattered around and near Blair's body were thousands, thousands of dollars, Canadian dollars, American dollars, as well as euros that would have been accepted in Germany. There was over $4,000 that were either fluttering in the early morning wind or found still inside of the fanny pack that Blair had stuffed with his valuables days before. That fanny pack actually was still stuffed with almost everything Blair had retrieved from his bank on Friday, July 5th. The same five ounces of gold bars, gold and platinum coins, and the various pieces of jewelry were found inside the small bag, as well as sets of keys and a pair of sunglasses. Though the fanny pack was unzipped, everything inside looked to have been left alone, completely untouched. Now, I said sets of keys because don't be mistaken no keys had ever actually gone missing from blair's person despite what he had tried to claim just the night before at the gas station the very set of car keys he had sworn were missing they were found just off to the side of his body the camry's keys had never been missing and he still had the nissan altima keys as well the ones belonging to the rental car that he had left thousands of miles away back in Canada. There were other curious belongings turned pieces of evidence scattered throughout the parking lot. His hotel key card was found nearby. The duffel bag that he had packed at his mother's house in Surrey was just next to his body, filled with, quote, maps and various travel receipts. So too were his shoes laying near the body. But one was, curiously, underneath Blair's head, almost like a pillow, according to Sheriff Jones. The strangest and one of the most unsettling things about the scene, though, was the state that Blair was found in. He was half naked, quote, nude from the waist down, and it looked as though, quote, his pants had been pulled down like someone pulled them off for him, from what Sheriff Jones recalled. His socks were off, inside out. His shirt was still on, but it appeared as if it had been ripped open, though investigators couldn't say who had tried to take Blair's shirt off, or even if it had been Blair himself. It was also clear that whatever it was that had happened, it had been violent. There was a gash across his forehead, one that police believed was made by some sort of weapon. What the weapon was, though, police could only guess at there had been nothing left at the scene. They noted that Blair had patches of hair missing. It looked as though, quote, the attacker ripped tufts of hair from his head. 
His hands were bloody, scratched, and blackened with deep bruises. From the police report, responding officers noted that, quote, Adams's hands were bloodied as though if he had held them up to defend himself. One cut was deep, blackened, like it had been, quote, forcefully knocked to the pavement. Inside that blackened, bruised hand was the only piece of evidence, DNA evidence, ever recovered from the scene. One long strand of hair. From the autopsy, more details were revealed, but they did nothing to answer any of the growing pile of questions investigators had. It was determined that, yes, the cause of Blair's death had been violent. He suffered, quote, a fatal blow that ruptured his stomach, which caused him to die from the septic shock of the beating. There was lettuce, meat, and shrimp still in Blair's stomach when he died, so he had clearly gone somewhere and eaten after he left the Fairfield Inn by foot. There were particular injuries that, quote, suggested sexual assault, but it is unclear when or even if such an assault actually occurred. But Blair knew no one in Tennessee. Had he met up with a stranger? Despite his odd behavior in the days leading up to his death, the medical examiner was able to confirm that Blair had never been diagnosed with any sort of mental illness, and he wasn't being treated for one at the time of his death either. And perhaps most curiously of all, his toxicology reports were completely clean. There wasn't a hint of any drugs or any amount of alcohol in his system. By all accounts, and despite his bizarre behaviors, Blair Adams had been sober and allegedly clear-minded, at least in his last hours. How do you investigate a case like this? That's the question that I kept coming back to throughout my research. I mean, how in the hell do you even begin to find threads of connections, of logic, of reasonable explanations in a case that seems to start in a state of mind that is, by what we know, scattered and unreasonable? From the beginning of Blair's distress on Friday the 5th to his multiple attempts to enter the U.S., his switching of cars, his cryptic conversations, and unexplained paranoia, and now to his strange and senseless murder in a town, in a state, where Blair did not know a single soul, it didn't make sense. It still doesn't make sense. There were two alleged sightings of Blair after he left the Fairfield Inn the last night of his life. One was at a gas station, different, though, from the one where he had interacted with Gerald Sapp and the other was at a Cracker Barrel on Strawberry Plains Pike. According to Travis Dorman's 2017 piece about the case for Knox News, the sightings were these. One, three employees at the T&R truck stop in Deep Springs Road in Dandridge claimed they saw Blair there between 9.30 to 10.30 p.m., flipping through tattoo magazines and talking to an unidentified man about Canadian money. The second was two women at the Cracker Barrel on Strawberry Plains Pike, and they told detectives that they saw at Blair with another man who, again, was never identified. Their stories differed, though, on what that man looked like. All that said, though, however, the police have ruled out these two sightings. They've yet to explain their reasoning for doing so. They seem like feasible enough spottings, possible clues to what exactly Blair did during his last night. The Cracker Barrel one especially, since we know for fact there was food in his stomach when he died, so Blair must have, somehow, some way, somewhere, eaten a meal that included lettuce, shrimp, and meat. I should note, though, there are two Deep Springs Road near where Blair died. One is in Knoxville, but it's eight hours away. The other is in the aforementioned Dandridge area, which is about five hours away. I wanted to do some digging to see how close the two might have been, and that's how I came to realize there were in fact two. 
So I can see why this possible sighting might be dismissed because it, again, doesn't make sense that Blair would have been able to get to either of these locations. But the Cracker Barrel sighting, I'm not convinced that it's not important. Many of the original responders to the bizarre scene 24 years ago believe there may have been something of a sexual element to the case. With Blair's pants pulled off and the evidence of some sort of sexual assault against him, police began to wonder if his death was the result of a sexual encounter turned deadly. It should also be noted that the area where Blair had spent his last hours, it was known to be one rife with truck stop sex work activities. Knox County Sheriff's cold case chief, David Davenport, he theorized that Blair could have been the victim of a tag team attack by a sex worker and their pimp. Quote, Blair could have started the act and never did it and got rolled. Or maybe if it was a female prostitute, maybe she had a pimp that was close by and they were going to roll this guy and they got scared and didn't. With this idea in mind, Knox County investigators interviewed and investigated a number of local pimps and individuals involved with the area's sex work scene. None, however, have ever been charged. The other odd thing, if Blair had been a target and he was being targeted to be rolled, then why wouldn't his attackers have taken his money, his gold, any of it? Police have stated that all of the money and valuables were accounted for, including even a $100 bill and a $10 bill that someone working at the site stole before they returned the money to investigators. So truly, not a thing had been stolen. Why would an alleged thief targeting Blair go through with their plan and then not steal any of the obvious and noticeable valuables? An interview with Blair's mother, Sandra Edwards, also reveals a possible clue that could bolster the theory Blair was the victim of a sexual assault gone wrong. She claims that he was, at one point in his life, in a relationship with a male roommate. To Knox News, she described the romantic relationship like this, quote, They acted a little strangely and giggled a lot, and it was kind of odd, but then he went back to a heterosexual relationship after that. Knowing that, now we have to ask, did Blair try to meet up with a man instead of a woman? Had he made advances on someone who, instead of welcoming them, turned violent against them? Was he attacked for wanting to have a sexual encounter with a male? Investigators have never elaborated on any of the details regarding the possible sexual assault that Blair suffered, but we do know that there was no viable DNA evidence recovered from whatever the assault was which severely hindered their ability to find possible suspects, male or female. Police turned their attention over the border back to Blair's Canadian roots, but they met dead end after dead end there as well. None of Blair's friends knew who precisely that he had been afraid of. His girlfriend knew nothing about his 1600 spontaneous purchase of a flight to Frankfurt. His former co-workers had no idea who the German colleagues that he claimed to be afraid of were. The women that he met with during his last weekend in Canada, they couldn't say if he had been involved with anything unsavory that would have led him to the paranoid thoughts he'd been having. There had never been any phone calls made from his apartment to Tennessee, much less anywhere in the U.S. There was no evidence Blair had made arrangements to meet anyone at all. There was nothing to suggest that he had even planned to go to D.C., much less Knoxville, before he randomly purchased his plane ticket and got on the highway in the early morning hours after renting the Nissan Altima Adults. The only person who did have a suggestion about Blair's intentions and thoughts was his mother. But she didn't share these with police, at least not then. She only first spoke of them in 2017, to reporter Travis Dorman during a brief phone conversation for the Knox News piece that proved invaluable to today's episode. Sandra Edwards claims that Blair had intended to go to the U.S. and had firm plans for his time there. 
She says he, quote, traveled to the South to attend the 1996 Summer Olympic Games in Atlanta, except Blair arrived in the U.S. on July 9th. The Olympic Games weren't supposed to start until July 19th, almost two weeks after he first arrived in the States. More to that confusing point, Atlanta is over 200 miles away from Knoxville, so what the hell was he doing in Tennessee and not Georgia? Sandra, though, either couldn't or wouldn't explain, quote, how she knew her son's destination, how he ended up in Knoxville, or why she never told police. Apparently, all she would say by means of explanation was, quote, that was the whole point of his trip. And then she hung up on Travis Dorman. I just have to say this. In what world would Blair's erratic behavior, bouncing from city to town to town across British Columbia, three wildly strange attempts to cross into the U.S. and bizarre travel purchases, in what world would anyone, much less a mother, classify that as a trip? That's not a vacation. That's not some fun adventure. Those are behaviors fueled by unsettled feelings and unpredictable thought patterns. They're the actions of a man, a scared man. And yet, no one in Blair's life had or still has any idea of what he was truly so afraid of. Much like I said at the beginning of this story, there are threads of both Maura Murray and Bryce Laspisa that are evident when you look at the case of Blair Adams. But there are also shadows of another strange death, another inexplicable case as well, that of Elisa Lamb. However, there's something to Blair's case that trends noticeably different from Elisa's. The coincidence of it all. Blair was afraid. He had voiced these fears to numerous people in his life. There was something bothering him, eating away at him, driving him away from the life that he lived. There was something, by all appearances, that was genuinely threatening him. Threatening enough that he ran, because that's the only way I can describe his behavior. Blair Adams was running from something. And if you ask me, it sounds like he had valid reason to do so. Many people, when first learning of this case, they often dismiss it as a tragic incident fueled by paranoia and a mental break of some sort. That's understandable because, admittedly, the mind is mysterious, and we can't always actually understand what leads someone to break with their reality. But in this case, what gets under my skin and really gives me pause is this. Why are people so quick to dismiss these fears of Blair? He had never struggled with mental illness before. He'd never had any sort of incident with this type of behavior prior to July 1996. And I also have to ask, what are the odds? What are the odds that a man who was vocally fearful for his life to the point that he left the country and ran from everything he knew, what are the odds that he just happens to fall victim to the very thing he was afraid of within days? What are the odds that Blair Adams knew his life was in danger and then days later, he was murdered? When Knox News tried to reach out to Blair's mother again, Travis Dorman instead had his call answered by her husband, Blair's stepfather. And he had words for the reporter. According to Dorman, Sandra's husband, quote, grew angry, called chances of solving the case remote as hell, and said, we're not going to open that can of worms again. A can of worms. That's a hell of a way to describe your stepson's unsolved murder. Which once again leads me to ask, 
what are the odds that a terrified Blair, what are the odds that he was right? He was scared for his life, terrified. And just as quickly as he alerted others to these fears, he wound up dead. In my opinion, it's a stretch to just call that a coincidence. I'm not so sure there is such a thing as coincidence when it comes to murder. And I mean, this is a case that at its heart and over 20 years later is still teeming with questions because of these supposed coincidences. So let's mull over some of those hashtag questions now. Question number one, when precisely did Blair's fears for his safety begin? How long was he publicly voicing these concerns for? Why didn't anyone in his life more seriously take his fears? Was Blair suffering some sort of mental health episode? Or did Blair have tangible reasons to be concerned for his life? When exactly did Blair stop going to his AA meetings? Why did he stop going to his AA meetings? Why did Blair refuse to elaborate about what was going on with him to those who asked? He told his mother just before he left the country that he didn't want to tell her what, quote, it was that was bothering him. But what was this it factor that he wouldn't speak of? Why was Blair afraid to tell people what he was afraid of? Who were the German co-workers who had returned to Canada that he claimed he was fearful of? Why was he fearful of them? Did something happen during his time in Germany that made him enemies? Enemies vicious enough to want him dead? Blair's stepfather owned the company that he worked for over in Germany. What does he know about these co-workers Blair said that he was afraid of, if anything? Has he ever shared with investigators what he knows about anyone Blair might have been afraid of from his time in Germany? Was Blair still dating the woman in Germany believed to be his girlfriend? If he was, then who was the woman alleged to be his girlfriend in Canada? Was Blair exploring his sexuality, as his mother claims, and did a former boyfriend have anything to do with the threats against his life? Did the state of his relationships have something to do with the perceived threats against his life? Why did Blair empty his bank account in his safety deposit box? Did he have reason to believe that his credit or debit cards were unreliable or even being tracked? Why did Blair make the almost four hour trip out to Courtney to see his uncle when his uncle wasn't even home? What role did his uncle play in all of this? Was he someone that Blair trusted? Was he someone that he feared? Did Blair even try to confirm that his uncle would be home or did he just go to Courtney in a panic? Did Blair ever go home during his weekend of driving to various friends' houses or did he simply continue going from house to house? Blair told one of his friends that he was afraid to stay in his own apartment. Why was he so afraid? Which then begs the question, if Blair never went home, did he ever sleep that weekend? Was he suffering some sort of mental health episode due to being sleep deprived? Who are the two women that he visited on his last weekend in Canada? What was their significance to Blair? And why would he have tried to get them specifically to help him? Why did the last person that he saw in Canada refuse to take him across the border? Which friend was it that saw Blair allegedly driving a blue car that weekend? Was Blair ever actually driving a blue car? If so, where did he get it? Why did he switch cars? Where was his Chevette? Did the U.S. border officials make note of refusing Blair entrance into the U.S.? And if they did, why didn't anyone have a record of his previous denials the other times he tried to make entrance? Where and when precisely did Blair buy the ticket to Frankfurt? Why did he want to go to Germany? Why didn't he tell his girlfriend of his intentions to get to Frankfurt where she lived? Was he ever going to actually go? Or was this some sort of distraction? Why did he so quickly turn around 
and then tried to refund the ticket the same day he bought it. Why was Blair wandering around the forested area near the U.S. border for his second attempt to get into the country? How did he get all of the scratches on his arms and legs that U.S. border officials noted? Did Blair have anything to do with the stolen blue car? Where was his Chevette at this time? When Blair arrived at the Vancouver airport, he abandoned his Chevette and rented a Nissan Altima that he used to finally drive into the U.S. Why did he actually and finally ditch the Chevette now? Was Blair afraid someone was tracking his car? Was someone tracking his car? Why did Blair buy a ticket to D.C. and why was this ticket one way while his ticket to Frankfurt had been round trip? Was there any reason for heading to D.C. or was he just trying to get as far away from Canada as possible? And if he was, why was he running? Why did Blair stop in Knoxville? Was he planning to meet someone there? Was he planning to travel further and stay the night and continue on? Why did he refuse to search his pockets for the keys of the Camry when he was at the gas station with Gerald Sapp? Why did Blair walk in and out of the Fairfield Inn five times before ever registering for a room? Was he afraid of someone coming up to him as hotel employees assumed? If so, who did he think was coming for him in a town and in a state where he didn't know anyone? Where did Blair go after he left the Fairfield Inn? Were either of the two different sightings of him accurate? Did Blair ever go out to Dandridge? Did Blair actually eat at the Cracker Barrel? If not, where did he eat that night since we know he had food in his stomach at the time of his death? If any of the sightings are accurate, then who was the man he was supposed to be with? And why have they never come forward? Was the screen that was heard by a security guard at 3.30 a.m. actually Blair? If not, did the scream have anything at all to do with what happened to Blair? It's clear that Blair was attacked as he was essentially beaten to death. What's not clear is, was he targeted or was his beating random? If he was targeted, then what was the reason? And why wouldn't someone have stolen any of his money or valuables? Was Blair caught up in a sex act gone wrong, either as a customer or as a provider? Was Blair attacked by a sex worker's pimp? What was the weapon that gave Blair the gash on his forehead? What was the impetus that caused his stomach to rupture? Why did Blair have to defend himself from an attacker? What happened to Blair that caused one of his hands to be blackened by bruises? Who pulled Blair's pants off and why? Why did his attacker leave him half naked? Was Blair sexually assaulted as the evidence seems to suggest? And if he was, how was no DNA evidence left behind? Has the only piece of evidence, the long strand of hair still clutched in his hand, has it ever been matched or tested? Is there any truth to the suggestion that Blair's mother made that he was intending to go to the Olympic Games in Atlanta? If there's not, why would she say that? Why did Blair's stepfather refuse to speak to reporters and tell them that the entire case was, quote, a can of worms that they didn't want reopened? Are his parents embarrassed by the whole thing? Or is there a reason that they don't want to assist in the case? What are the odds that a man begins to fear for his life and winds up mysteriously murdered in a state that he has no connection to just days later? Did Blair Adams know that death was coming for him? If so, why was he so certain of this? Finally, who killed Blair Adams? It's been almost a quarter century since Blair Adams was found in a baffling set of circumstances that surround his even more confusing death. In the words of Travis Dorman again, though, quote, 
No one's been charged in the killing. All leads have been exhausted and only one piece of DNA evidence exists. Blair's case is assigned to David Davenport, the Knox County Chief of the Cold Case Unit, so it is reviewed, at least every so often, along with the other 40 cases that Davenport oversees. This is as cold a case as I've ever seen, and yet there are so many possibilities about the pieces that fall into place that lead to the dominoes that collapse at the scene of Blair's murder. It's clear that Blair Adams was murdered. It's clear he feared for his life. It's clear he took great pains and went to great lengths to ensure his security that first week of July in 1996. Those three facts might be the only ones that we can actually hold on to in this case that seems to be made up of more questions than anything else. I think the most frustrating thing about this case is how similar it is to those others that I've mentioned throughout this story. It's reminiscent of Maura Murray's disappearance. It is clear parallels to Elisa Lamb's death, and it also reminds me of Bryce Lespisa's disappearance as well. The thing that ties these cases together is a sense of what was going on? There are so many things about each of these cases where we just don't know what was the catalyst, the impetus for the events that took place in all of them. And with that lack of information, it brings me back precisely to what I said at the beginning of our story today. It doesn't make sense. Blair Adams' death is a clear murder despite all of the ways that it still doesn't make sense 24 years later, and it very well may be the blueprint about how to get away with murder. Because it's clear that, despite its criminal nature, someone is and has been getting away with it. And Blair Adams, no matter what was going on in his life, he deserves justice, and he still deserves answers. Thanks for listening to today's episode. If you're liking what you're hearing, please go leave a five-star review and rating for the show over on Apple Podcasts. I'll be back here next week with another hashtag question loaded story to tell you. And I appreciate all of you being so cool with me taking a break last week after the exhausting one that the election week proved to be. Before I sign off, I want to give a shout out to all of the new Patreon members of the Dog Crew this month because I am so thrilled to share that there are a lot. Big shout out to my fellow Elon Phoenix, Catherine. Big thank you to Dee Radler, Tiffany Dreyer, Victoria Katowski, and Marissa Freisner. You all help keep things running smoothly, excitedly, and copiously in terms of content here on the Good Ship Dot, and I am grateful for your support. If you're interested in joining the DAW Patreon crew, you can head on over to patreon.com slash darkasellpodcast to see what level might be up your alley of interest. There's a new Patreon level and it only costs $1. You can support DAW and the work that I do here for just $1 a month and get yourself shouted out in an episode and have access to exclusive content on the Patreon. This month's calendar of exclusive Patreon content is one that I'm really excited about. This week, for the members of the DAW Spooky Crew, I will be discussing the missing and murdered Indigenous women epidemic, and I'll be sharing a story that's truly scary in how normalized it's become. The Wine and Weirds crew can expect to see their content in the coming weeks, and everybody should be keeping their eyes peeled for a little Black Friday action as well. While you're waiting for next week's episode to drop, you can find Dark as Hell on Instagram at Dark as Hell Podcast, that's all one word, and on Twitter at Dark as Hell Pod. Again, all one word. If you want to get in touch with me, you can email your comments or questions of your own over to me at darkasshellpodcast at gmail.com, or you can head on over to darkasshellpodcast.com. Thanks again for listening, and I'll catch you back here next week, ready to get dark as hell all over again. <laughs>